Okay, good morning, everybody. I'm going to have to recover from running downstairs. Okay, we're going to continue with our foundations of the faith. <clears throat> we're going to start a um, lesson on authority of the Godhead. Uh, probably go at least a couple of weeks, maybe three weeks, depending on how things go and discussion and things like that. But we're going to look at that, starting with the idea that there are when we think about it in the religious world anyway, not in the world in general, in the religious world, you know, I guess you could extend it beyond that, but there are really two sources of authority. Right? There's heaven's, uh, heaven's authority, God's authority, and then there's man's authority. We can see that in Matthew chapter 21. When we talk about those, the authority from heaven really is God's doctrine. It's revealed in the scriptures. We see that in various verses. One is Romans 6 and 17. It says, But God bethink that you were servants of sin, but you have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered to you. So a doctrine delivered to us from God. So there's God's authority. And then also there's authority from man, and the Bible tells us also from demons. When we look at Mark chapter 7, verses 6 through 9, it says, And he said unto them, Well did Isaiah prophesy, O you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold fast to the traditions of men. And he said unto them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your own traditions. And then looking a little further in 1 Timothy 4 and 1, it says, Now the Spirit speaks expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. So when we look at it in the world today, in the religious world, we're going to see two things. We're going to see the authority of God through the doctrine of God, and then we're going to see another authority that doesn't come from God. It's not legitimate. It's going to come from man. Now, man is going to do this either through his own heart or he's going to be seduced by other things that he's heard. I was reading a book a while back. I haven't quite finished it yet. We did some moving around here, there, wherever, and I've kind of misplaced my book, so I've got to find my book so I can finish reading it. But it talked about liberalism. And it summed it up in one phrase. It said, essentially, liberalism is selfishness. It's putting aside what God wants and putting in place of it what I want. Selfishness. And that's what we see here a lot of times in the religious world, and the authority that people do things is based on selfishness. It's based on what I want. Should we have music in the service? Well, I like music. So music's a good thing, so we, we might as well have music, right? That's what you see in the religious world. The Bible doesn't expressly, expressly tell me I can't have it, so therefore I'm going to use it. But on the other hand, the Bible doesn't expressly tell me I can use it either. Have you ever seen a small child growing up? They'll come to you and maybe you're the father and you're getting on to them for doing something. Well, mom didn't tell me I couldn't do it. No, did mom say you could do it? No. 
okay? More than likely, you're going to punish the child anyway, right? Because they're doing something that was wrong. So I don't understand the concept of men in the world today in a religious aspect thinking in this line of thought, I guess. Do you really want to stand up in front of God one day and say, well, you really didn't tell me I couldn't do it? But that's what a lot of people use today. God didn't say I couldn't do it. But God also told us not to add to what he gave us, right? And if it's not in there, then we can't add to it. When we look at authority itself, in Matthew chapter 21, the Greek word that's translated authority in our Bibles is, it means it is right or it is lawful. So authority is the power to command that which is right and that which is lawful. That's authority. <clears throat> when someone's in a position of authority, they have the ability to direct the, direct the actions of others. We see an example of this in Roman centurion who approached Jesus requesting help from his servant. He talks about the fact that he served under a chain of command. He answered to those above him, and he had some that answered to him. So he said... <clears throat> that he realized that Jesus didn't have to come to his house to heal his servant. He knew that the Son of God could simply speak and the servant would be healed. He understood this concept of authority. He understood Christ's authority. The authority Jesus possessed and exercised was not based on the conventional views of society, our governmental structures, in other words. Rather, Jesus' authority was derived from his position within the Godhead. Whether the people today acknowledge Jesus' authority does not detract from it. His authority is rooted in his identity as the Son of God and in the very nature of God itself. Isaiah wrote to describe this nature, Remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. Isaiah 46, 9 and 10. It's saying here in this verse, God's power, his authority, his right to command. He says, declaring the end from the beginning. So what God is saying is, I know the end of things before I ever begin them. God knows when governments will rise and when they will fall. God knows when time on earth will end. All these things were done and determined prior to their beginning. We can look back in history and we can see this idea of governments rising in the world, great empires developing and then falling. We know when our government took place in this world and what time it was. We don't have any idea when that government will end and something else will come along. But God already knows that. He knew that before our government in this country ever started. And that won't change. That's his authority. That's his power to command. Moses tells us there is one God. Deuteronomy 6, 4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, is one Lord. We look a little deeper into this verse. It talks about the fact that the Lord... Let me start again. Hear, O Israel, the Lord. That term Lord there is Jehovah, the self-existent one, 
the eternal one. So when he talks about our Lord, he's talking about God in heaven, the self-existent one, the eternal one. He is our God. The term here is Elohim, plural. And it means the Almighty. So Moses tells us there is one God, one Lord, but also uses a plural term. Okay, to us that wouldn't really make sense in a normal conversation, would it? But we understand the concept of the Trinity of the Godhead. We understand when we're talking in plural what it means. When you think back in the old days, the medieval times or something like that, where you had the kingdom rise, and you will see in a lot of movies today the way that they used to talk. And then when the kings and queens and stuff would talk to the people, they would use a plural term, right? When they referred to themselves, they would say, we. Okay? But there's just one person sitting there. There's one person talking. That form of speech came from this. God referred to himself in the plural. And that's where man picked that up. So the God has comprised of three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, which are of the same essence and equal in their attributes. So let's think about this in kind of an illustration. When Paul was in Athens, he tells us that God hath made of one blood all nations of men. Each one of us are distinct from other. In our will, in our thought, in other characteristics. And that makes our personality. That defines us. But yet, even though we're different in so many ways, we all share the same essence and attributes and qualities that make up humanity. We're kind of an illustration between us as humankind and God and the Godhead. Some brethren stumble in their concept of the Godhead when they fail to recognize that the unity of God's, the Godhead's fundamental nature and unity of purpose do not require union in action or prohibit diversity in function. The Godhead acts when all three are acting as one, or it acts when one acts as the agent of the others. The Godhead... The submission of one member of the Godhead to another does not result in the destruction of the Godhead or removal of the submitting member from the Godhead. We can see that in the Bible and the Scriptures. We see Christ came to earth as man. Gave up heaven to come to speak to us. He did that on the authority of the Father. And Christ tells us that in Scripture. He was acting for the Godhead, but he was the only one teaching and speaking and preaching on earth at the time. No further in Scripture, we also see the fact that the Spirit would make known unto the apostles all truth. Right? So the Spirit now is acting in and of itself for the Godhead. But just because those act independently at the time does not mean there's a disruption or a disagreement or anything in the Godhead. One is acting for another. When I'm at work, then I have people that report to me. But when I decide 
I need a vacation, then I ask someone else to do that function for me when I'm gone, right? We're associated with that in our world today. And the same thing is true of the Godhead. We can notice the authority assigned to the Godhead and the emphasis placed upon Jesus' authority position. Acts 2 and 33 says, He has been exalted to the right hand of God and serves as Lord of Lord and King of Kings. As Jesus stated, He is the one who now possesses all authority and in heaven and on earth. God the Father placed him in this position. We see that in Ephesians 1, 22 and 23. So, authority, as we talked about, can be shifted, can be delegated, whatever term you want to use for that. Christ talks about the fact that the Father gave him all authority in heaven and on earth. And we've discussed this before. Why did God do that? Scriptures tell us. What was the, what's the answer? On the right track. Right. All those are good answers. But the one I'm looking for is God said, so that you will respect the Son as you respect the Father. Father said, I gave my authority to my Son so you will respect Him just as much as you respect me. Okay? So the authority of Christ is the authority of the Godhead. The Father has decreed that. As such, we must yield, to our, must yield our will to His. It is not enough to acknowledge Jesus as Lord. We must obey Him completely. See that in Luke 6 and 46 and Matthew 7, 21 through 23. All our actions must be based upon the direction of God. Paul tells us in Colossians 3 and 17, And whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. So we're looking at the idea of the Godhead, what authority is, how we respond to that authority. So now that we know and have defined authority, we understand there is good authority and bad authority, we're concerned with that good authority, right? The doctrine of God. That's what we want to obey, that's what we want to follow. how to word this. We know what God's doctrine is. We know who God is in the world today, not us here in this auditorium, we know, but in the world today, why would I want to follow the doctrine? Why would I want to follow what you call God? we look a little further in the scriptures, we see the authority inherent with God is clearly portrayed in the call of Moses. While Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, near Horeb, he saw a bush that was burning with fire, but the bush was not consumed. So naturally he went to investigate, and God spoke to him from the midst of the bush. Um, <clears throat> God told Moses to take your sandals off, for the place that you stand is holy ground. Now obviously... The ground was not holy because of any value of the dirt, the ground itself, right? It was whole, it, the holiness was derived from God's presence being there. 
God introduced himself as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the scene proved to be overwhelming to Moses, and he hid his face where he was afraid to look upon God in Exodus 3, 3 and verse 6. Moses felt his insignificance and his worthlessness. God used the occasion to call Moses to lead his people from Egyptian bondage. And we see in Exodus 3, 8 through 10, I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up from that land to a good land and large land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Come now, therefore, and I will send you to Pharaoh that you may, be bring, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Moses was reluctant and asked, Who am I that I, that I should go? And then the response in verse 14 was, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say unto the children of Israel, I am has sent me. So we, we read this. There's probably no, many, no telling how many times we've read this, right? But when God's talking, he says, I am has sent you. So what is he saying? Any ideas? You know, he's telling us what we've just studied, right? He said, this is a statement that reveals God's ultimate authority. The phrase describes God's uniqueness. Identify, identifies that he is eternal, he is all-powerful, and he has all authority. Given God's nature, it's not surprising that the foundational laws governing his people were based upon his identity and authority. God is not to be placed in a subordinate position to anyone or anything. His followers are neither to have other gods before him or create any graven images to worship. God's name is to be handled with respect. When we think about God and we think about the authority and the power that God has, it's hard for us to understand that. It is far beyond what we are able to comprehend. We see a little bit about the authority and really about the power of God in the scriptures. But we really have no concept of the power that he commands. It's been some time now. And um, I don't know how long. One of the lessons I've done before we talked about the power of God. And we showed the idea of the earth where we live. And then we could go out and we could see really from that point the solar system that we live in and the distances and stuff that we're talking about when we describe the solar system. We looked at the idea of the sun and how big the sun was compared to Earth and then realized that there's really, really nothing compared to what's out there. The sun that we have is about a million miles across. But there are other stars out there that are a billion times larger than the sun that we see. The distances that are in the universe are truly amazing. We can look out and see not only the solar system we're in, we can imagine now also the Milky Way galaxy that we stay in and the interstellar cluster that it belongs to and then the galactic neighborhoods and then further and further and further we go. We can get to the point where the neighborhood of the stars that we live in, not just 
the Milky Way galaxy, but all those other galaxies that make up are just a point. And then we really don't have any idea how far it goes beyond that. And we cannot study beyond that because we will not live a lifetime long enough to get answers. But we believe that what we can see and what we can determine at this point is maybe 10% of what's out there. And I got some charts and we really don't have anybody to, to run them today upstairs, but I'll try to, to do that maybe next week to show you this. But the power of God is so amazing and so awesome that it is not something that we can understand. We can't understand the concept of time, really. We can count hours and days and minutes. But we really have no idea what time is. It was given to us. In the creation, God made the sun and the moon. He made day and night. And then we divided it, we divided it into years and months and days and hours and minutes. But where it comes from, we have no idea. This is the one we serve. This is why when Moses was confronted with the presence of God, he felt unworthy. Moses understood some of these concepts of God's power. We go a little further, we look at um, Daniel 7, verses 13 to 14, we talk about the Ancient of Days. A passage establishing the authority of the Godhead is found in Daniel 7. In this text, Daniel's vision involves the one like the Son of Man approaching the Ancient of Days. The Ancient of, day, ancient of Days is, extends authority to the one who's like the Son of Man. Verse 14, it says, Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, and all that peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one that shall not be destroyed. The text is best explained as being messianic. When we look at Jesus' life in Mark 14, verses 61 and 62, Jesus identified himself as that Son of Man sitting on the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. There is no other passage really in the Old Testament which Christ could have been alluding to. Furthermore, when Christ made the claim, the high priest said, You have heard the blasphemy, demonstrating that Jesus was understood to ascribe deity to himself. Not to be missed is the claim authority found in Daniel. The Ancient of Days could not bestow dominion, glory, and a kingdom upon one like the Son of Man if he did not possess the authority to do so. God did exactly what Daniel's vision foresaw. The Son of Man now reigns over his kingdom, which is the church. So the Ancient of Days... The Father bestowing upon the Son the kingdom. And as we discussed earlier, all the authority and all the power that goes with it. Jesus explicitly declared his authoritative position when he issued what is commonly called the Great Commission, addressing his apostles prior to the ascension. Then he told them in Matthew 18, <clears throat> excuse me, Matthew 28, 18 through 20. 
All authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Go therefore make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. So we get from this verse what was discussed earlier. All authority has been given unto me in heaven and on earth. So in this age, in this dispensation, all authority is given to who? Jesus. Jesus Christ, right? Now, coming from the one who has all authority, what was his next statement? So therefore make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. This really is the opposite of a lot of what the religious world teaches today, isn't it? A commandment to make disciples and to baptize and to follow the teachings. Not just some of the teachings. It says all of the commandments. But yet we have so many people out of the religious world today that are preaching the fact that one... Baptism is not necessary. So what they're saying is Jesus, who has all authority, is giving us a direction to go do something which is unnecessary. And then, compounding that, they say that faith only. As long as you believe, then you'll be saved. Not what Jesus said, is it? What was the next phrase? Observe all things that I have commanded you. If salvation is based on faith only, then why do we have a command to follow everything that Christ taught us? Another one of those cases where we have the doctrine of men, not the doctrine of God. Baptism occurs in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This reflects the stamp of authority offered by the members of the Godhead for this act of obedience. It's important to notice that the word, is, <clears throat> word name is singular. Jesus does not say that his followers should baptize in the names of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but in the name of these individuals. It points to the fact that they are in some sense one. We should also notice that some passages mention the work of all three members of the Godhead in conjunction with one another. In Titus 3, verses 4 through 7, we see wherein God's mercy is bestowed through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So the Father, the authority of salvation through the washing of regeneration through the Spirit, and then working through Jesus Christ. Now we understand the authority of the Godhead is absolute and essential if we have to do, if we wish to do the will of the Father. We have to understand this concept. We have to understand the idea of authority and who authority belongs to. If we're going to follow what is rightful, as the scripture tells us, what is lawful, then we have to understand where our authority comes from. Who do we follow and why? Are we following the doctrines of men? Or are we following the doctrines of the Father? 
We can't be following the wrong one and expect that we're going to be saved. When we look back through biblical times, the examples that are given to us in the scriptures, <coughs> God was able to save mankind, but salvation is only based upon what God directs us, right? We see those examples in scriptures. God does not allow us to go our own way and still be saved. He tells us it's not for us to direct our own steps. <clears throat> God created us. He knows us. He knows our nature. He knows we can't direct our own steps and do what is right. We need God's guidance in his direction. If God is authoritative, then we must place our, desi our desires aside and follow his decrees. As we talked about before, this idea of selfishness, this idea of liberalism. We can't put our desires, our wants above what God directs. There may be a lot of things that we like in this world, and those things may be fine in different settings. I mean, I'll go to the grocery store and I'll come back with a pack of Mountain Dews, right? And when I'm out working on the house, then I'll be drinking some Mountain Dew. And that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But we can't put Mountain Dew here, can we? Because we've been directed otherwise. The authority of God tells us these things. So what is acceptable in the world in some cases is not acceptable here and in the church. We may listen to music on the radio when we ride down the road, and that's fine. God doesn't give us any direction in that situation. But God does describe the music that he wants in his services. He talks about the fact that we sing to one another. We talked about before the fact that in the songs we edify one another. And it doesn't make any difference how much I like the sound of a piano or an organ or anything else. That piece of instrument will never, ever be able to edify me. It cannot speak. It cannot teach. And that's what edification is. A lot of people misunderstand that term. They think edification is just making you feel good, making you feel better, encouraging you. But when you look at what edification is, edification means to teach one another. To uplift one another with the word. Instruments cannot do that. They cannot meet the requirement of music in the church. The inherent authority possessed by the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is rooted in the very nature and identity of God. Consequently, the answer God provided to Moses regarding his identity, I am who I am, should still resonate with us today. Rather than exalting ourselves and placing our own selfish desires ahead of God's will, we must acknowledge his authority and humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. As he said, we have to follow the things that God tells us, the directions that he gives us. He does give us 
certain specific commands that we are to follow. But then he also gives us times when we can use our judgment. Tells us that we should go and teach and preach the word. That's the commandment. That's something that we have to do. But he doesn't say you have to walk everywhere you go like I did when I preached. Right? He doesn't say you can't get in a car and drive somewhere. You can't pick up a phone and call somebody. You can't send a letter or a card or anything like that. That's left up to us how we can do it and what is best. We get to make those choices. That's left to us. I have a friend in California that I'm working with. I can't walk to California to talk to him. Right? So through texting and email and things like that. And I sent him things. Those are the choices that we're allowed to make. But when it comes to things that are specifically defined, we cannot override what the Father has already given us. Okay, and that wraps up the lesson for today. Next week, we'll look at the authority in the Word of God. And we'll go from there. Are there any questions or any comments before we adjourn? Mm-hmm. and doctrines and what I've found so far just a glance at it anything that's there's only one doctrine right. and when, when the word doctrines is used it's doctrines of men doctrines of devils yeah. it's a plurality when it's yeah. there's, there's only one true doctrine the doctrine is his doctrine and so it's um, that's what it's one of the you know, one of the pro- problems we have with the concept of denominationalism, right, is God tells us that there's only one true doctrine, and everyone should preach, teach, and live the true doctrine. And if we did, why would there be denominations? Because we'd all be teaching exactly the same thing, which is what Christ prayed for. And, and we can't pretend it's okay. No. Just believing in God can't get you there. The Bible tells us that the demons believe in God, but they're not going to be saved. But that's why we have the Bible. Right. So we can search and find. Well, thank you all.